Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me as always through the miracle of satellite technology is Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hello, um, it's going very well and I am in a matter of 47 minutes about to be one year older. Oh man, that's incredible and some weird magic with all of that math. Yes, um, I literally just worked out. It definitely is forty-seven minutes. I'm pretty sure. Yes, I'm. Uh, it's my birthday tomorrow, um, nice. and uh, I always like my birthday. I try and do a lot of things. The older I've got, the more I've liked my birthdays. When I was younger, I seemed to kind of like kind of just be a bit. Oh, let's just let it happen and and just forget about it as quickly as possible. But the older I've mm. got, the more I've like fallen into the kind of treat yourself mentality. Generally, try and put aside a week and try and <laughs> try and do things. For myself, but also things that I've never done before. Um, That's cool. Like last year I did uh, some archery. I'd always wanted to do archery. So I booked a, um, like a, like a guy who lived in the Peak District somewhere. He just had like a shed. I went to his and did archery and he was like, do you want to throw some hatchets as well? And I was like, yeah, do I ever? Um, and like, yeah, he was in like a hatchet throwing club. Uh, and I was like, that guy's cool. And I had like a tango lesson. Uh, and I did all, all, I try and do like loads of cool stuff that is outside of the daily routine so even if it's just like going out for breakfast or something and you know you know treating yourself to to a, a, a cheeky mimosa before mm-hmm. midday yeah it's a pretty good thing um and this week i've got like a full schedule uh of things planned cool. and yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to it that sounds great when you said uh archery and then hatchet throwing i thought oh, he's really preparing for our eventual hunger games future but then the tango lesson comes in it's like oh He's he's keeping his options open. Maybe maybe things will be more optimistic, and it will be a future in which fate will be decided through dance offs. Well, I'm I'm trying to cover all bases. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Kind of a, a kind of broad general knowledge for pub quizzes, uh, a little bit of dancing, and yeah, the 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 inevitable survival skills that we'll all need. I mean, as long as I've got a hatchet, I can throw it in a straight line. Yeah. Although that has just given me an idea for a mashup of kind of like a YA novel that's a mix between the Hunger Games and They Shoot Horses, don't they? So I'm just going to copyright that now. Uh, and this is yeah. this is legally binding, so no one steal that idea. It's going to be it's going to be visually dynamic when uh, when yeah. it comes to the big screen. Uh, so let's get on with this week's news. And uh, as has been the case for many weeks, the, we're leading off with the story of sexual assault. This one is very late breaking in that the story just kind of broke in the last half an hour or so before we started recording that Jeffrey Tambor, who uh, is the star of, or one of the stars of the Amazon show Transparent, has announced that he's not going to be returning the show to the show following a couple of uh, allegations of sexual assault uh, involving him and, and members of that show's uh, crew and, and kind of the ex- uh, supporting cast. This is kind of an evolution of a story that's been going on in the background for a few weeks. I think that the first accusations came out uh, like two weeks ago, but because of all the other accusations against everyone else that's happening, uh, they kind of got they were kind of flown under the radar until now. But this uh, is kind of a, a fairly big step. He says that he, he doesn't feel as if he can return to the show following the accusations and the uh, quote politicized atmosphere, which kind of to me seems like a very vague way of him saying that. Yeah, probably more accusations are going to come out, so I'm just going to step aside now before before it gets worse. Mm. It's interesting to think that, like, if you wound the clock back a year and said, 
that due to a, a kind of mass um, purge of, of like sexual harassment perpetrators and sexual abusers, we're going to see three of the most critically acclaimed like shows on TV across various networks in Transparent, House of Cards, and uh, Louis, like now, mm. now no longer on television, um, that we would have been quite surprised by that. But now it just seems inevitable that, um, you know, things are just going to be wiped off the map and the cinematic mm. and TV show map, um, which is, like we say, it's it's just desserts, I guess. I think Transparent's going to continue, but it seems hard to see how. Yeah, because he was so central to that show in his role as Moira and... Uh, I haven't kept up with the show. I only watched the first season and then, like we were talking about this beforehand, in the year of peak TV, when everyone says, oh, you need to watch this new show, you kind of lose track of the old shows that you've been following for a long time. But uh, my understanding is that even though that show built out its supporting cast a lot more over time, he's still a very central part of it, so it seems hard to see how it could continue. Uh, By comparison, something like Arrested Development, the fifth season of which is starting to kind of rev up a little bit now Mm -hmm. you could see them writing him out with relative ease because it's such a big cast and they struggled so much to give george senior stuff to do in season four anyway Mm -hmm. that it's probably if anything it gives them less of a headache to have to write him out of the show at this point but uh yeah with this one where it's he is he is the kind of the central focus of so much of it uh, it's hard to see what that show would become, but I'm sure that, you know, Jill Soloway and all the people involved would want to keep it going because it would be really shitty if a lot of people lost their jobs because of one guy's actions. Mm, yeah, I was thinking about uh, Arrested Development as well, but it, it seems, I kind of, I still actually can't believe that we're going to get a fifth season of Arrested Development at this point. Mm. And I was so burned by season four that um, if it didn't happen, if it got cancelled because of this, I, you know, I would I would not be uh, you know too sad, mm. um, but it's you know it's just it's it's like not slowing down, is it? This this whole uh, it's kind of snowballing, mm. um, and yeah, there's I, I, elsewhere in the news this week we had um, allegations intensify against uh, George Takei, mm-hmm. and also oh yeah Sylvester Stallone, um, yeah. So yeah, it's it does not show any signs of stopping. Mm. Matthew Weiner, another one where there'd been mm-hmm. accusations against him. Uh, I'm not sure if there'd been any like specific ones. Just so much a sense that he just created a very very bad atmosphere. Mm. Uh, which, given the show that Mad Men was, which you know I think was a very great show about masculinity, but also did often fall into the trap of. Uh, lionizing the kind of the the attitudes that it was critiquing or exploring uh, it's kind of not that difficult to imagine that the writers room there probably wouldn't have been that great for women especially Mm. when it got towards the end and they were trying to hire like um, they were hiring like the guy who wrote Chinatown (laughs) it's like you couldn't hire a woman but you could hire an 80 year old man who's not written anything in a long time yeah who like you know? Whilst that's a cool credit because he wrote Chinatown and mm. and you know a screenplay that is often quoted as being one of the best screenplays of all time. Other people are available. Yeah, absolutely. In other news, we heard that 
or we found out that George Clooney is going to adapt Catch-22 into a TV miniseries, which uh, on one level is very exciting because George Clooney hasn't had a regular TV role in 20-something years, you know, since he left, left ER. And even then, this is not regular in the sense that he'll be coming back to do it year in, year out. You know, there's only so much story to uh, Catch-22, unless he also decides to adapt the sequel that no one remembers. Um mm-hmm. Was there but, a sequel to it? Yes, I think it's called Something Happened. Uh, right. Pre, uh, published like 20-something years later. Uh, I haven't read it but um, because no one ever said it was that good. <laughs> but mm. like, if you're, if you're following up Catch-22, you know, it's going to be hard to top that. Um, yeah. But it's certainly, a, it's certainly a bold choice from Clooney coming off of Suburbicon and a not especially fruitful period of his career as a director to say, okay, what I'm going to do is really kind of swing for the fences and adapt one of the seminal works of American fiction of the 20th century. Mm. I mean, it, it's a good fit for him because he is like falls well into line with uh, people like Mike Nichols, who directed the the film adaptation of Catch-22. Mm. Um, it's a good mix of material because uh, Clooney is very... Um, politically minded, and it's a you know very pointed satire uh, in terms of its its content. Um, it's a mini series, I think it is. Yeah, for Paramount TV. I don't. What else do Paramount TV do? I'm not entirely sure. I think I'm, I'm. I think it's one of those things where Paramount are producing it, but it doesn't have a home yet. Oh, okay. So rather than it being on a specific Paramount channel, mm. but like you say, it's it's could be. Um, a, a kind of a rich seam for him to mine, but he's so hit and miss as a director. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about Suburbicon's struggles that he he really um, yeah struggles sometimes to to find any consistency with his directorial projects. And yeah, it might be just slightly beyond his reach. Although you know, uh, Good Night and Good Luck will always remain you know a thoroughly excellent film. Mm. Um, so he is capable of uh, turning something out and I kind of hope it's good because it's a, I think it's a good match um whether or not you know it's too cumbersome I mean it's often talked about as being too cumbersome to be an effective film mm. um so TV might be a better place for it yeah maybe I think the the question is just whether or not he manages to hold, handle the comedy because the book whilst being a kind of morally fairly serious in terms of its its description of of war as this kind of great uh, absurd uh, abomination of the human spirit and, and whatnot uh, is also like kind of wacky and funny and crazy and at times kind of zany and chaotic mm-hmm. and those aren't qualities that he has had much use uh, much success with i mean if you're looking at something like leatherheads like mm-hmm. that didn't quite work there, and Suburbicon has a similar tone because it's a Coen Brothers script, an old Coen Brothers script. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if you look back in his filmography, going back fourteen years at this point, you get Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which has some of the qualities you would hope to see in a Catch Twenty Two adaptation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so there's there's potential there, but uh, at this point, looking at kind of the early promise of his work as a director and how it's kind of shaken out, you would think maybe it would be better if he was just producing it and he, he kind of like coaxed the, the Coens to direct it. Mm. Um, but they're busy with their own Western TV series, so maybe they just weren't available. 
Yeah, yeah. Everyone's making TV shows these days. You just mm-hmm. can't. No one, no one's available. Yeah. Speaking of TV series, we found out that uh, Carmen Ajogo is going to be joining the cast of True Detective Season 3 alongside uh, Maharshala Ali. Uh, people who don't know, Carmen Ajogo is uh, a British actress who uh, was most recently in things like Selma and the second season of The Girlfriend Experience. And uh, going way back was also in Absolute Beginners, where you know she was, she was very, very young, but a, a wonderful character actor who has never really kind of had a, a big kind of marquee hit to her name despite being pretty much great in everything so uh, this is kind of a very exciting to see her being given what should hopefully be a chance to, to really shine um, and you know when you look at some of the people they get into direct like Jeremy Solnier who I'm you know you and I are both big fans of uh, mm. the the ingredients are certainly coming together for that season to be really really good uh, it's just now a question of whether or not Nick Pizzolato can point them in the right direction. Yeah, and it's it's whether he has burnt up with the goodwill that was gained from season one um, and then completely pissed up the wall um, by season two, which um, season two, I know less people who have finished it than have started it and abandoned it. Yeah. Which is not a good ratio, <laughs> which is true of also the novel on the road. I know far fewer <laughs> people have actually finished that book um, than, have, than have started it and given up. Um, but yeah, it's um, I really just kind of want to see interesting actors doing kind of mildly spooky cult shit mm. <laughs> in my... Yeah, that's how I like my true detective. I don't want to be like kind of teased with it and then basically having what plays out to be a very drab procedural mm. um, with hugely uninteresting characters like we had last time. Yeah, you don't want to tune in and get sub-James Elroy kind of L.A. nonsense. Mm. Like, yeah. everyone everyone in the world has, tried, has ripped off James Elroy at this point. You know, it's like, try and, try and rip someone else off, someone a bit more interesting. Yeah, and it's never a good look, is it, when you say... Like Nick uh, Pizzolato, was it Pizzolato, is that his name? Yep. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, he said before they started filming the second season, oh, it's going to be about this. Mm-hmm. And then literally a week before they started shooting, it was like, well, okay, maybe something else that's now markedly less interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It wasn't it about like the kind of the, the, the kind of vaguely supernatural beginnings of the, the LA public transit system. And I was like, I'm on board for that. Yeah. Um, but no, we just got, Kind of uh, like kind of watered down, like you say, James Elroy doing eyes wide shut. Mm, yeah, yeah, it was, and not as good as that sounds. Yeah, it was disappointing uh, across the board, uh, which was you know a great shame because again you had a great cast and decent directors lined up. Oh no, it's all happening again, isn't it? <laughs> season yeah. three is going to be a disaster. No, I'm still hopeful that season three will be good, but uh, I am, I'm certainly approaching this one with a lot more skepticism than I did the second one when it was when it was coming up yeah yeah absolutely but like I mean they've they've taken it in I mean did they, has they said anything about the setting uh no I haven't read anything about it I've just heard cast details and some of the uh some of the crew uh which is exciting in its own way it'd be nice to go in knowing as little as possible yeah yeah because that, that I mean that's the one kind of 
best weapon that True Detective One had in its arsenal was it just came from nowhere, hmm. and we knew it was happening, but I like, didn't really know a whole lot about it. And within two episodes, you were right in there. Yeah, and it was you know you were being given characters that you hadn't really seen in TV before, and a story that felt new and exciting, and like. It's hard to do that every season <laughs> to just be mm-hmm. kind of like, hey, here's something you've not seen on television before. Enjoy. But, you know, even the second season, I think, could have been good if it was just better handled. And yeah, maybe if it wasn't trying to overcorrect for the criticisms of the first season by going like ridiculously dark at the end. Like, as I think we said on our episode about it, when you've got... Uh, Vince Vaughn just like stumbling through the desert with blood pouring out of his stomach and it's just kind of like yeah I mean you you can have a little bit of levity (laughs) Mm. yeah that would have been nice Mm. this week our topic such as it is you know is a a tradition that we've done in the past where when it's one of our birthdays we just kind of have a free-for-all and let the the birthday boy uh, dictate where the direction of the show is going to be and uh, this time it's your birthday Matt so I hand it over to you to tell us where where we're going to go on this uh audio journey first of all i'd like to provide a little um history and i asked you earlier in the day to to tell us what was going on uh, when i was born way back mm-hmm. in november 1980 uh, in the world of cinema i get like the vague sense of what films were out but you always remember the classics and, and the ones that are memorable the films that kind of fell by the wayside are the ones i'm more interested in so what mm. were the big what was big at the box office in november 1980 ed it's it's kind of uh, annoying because uh, you know box office mojo, which is a very useful uh, service that you know provides lots of statistics about different years and different months, pretty much cuts off at like nineteen eighty two. Once ET comes out, that's when they keep track of the box office numbers a little better. So I had to do some digging, but uh, some of the big releases that month, at least in in retrospect, uh, was the Golden Globus movie The Apple, a mm-hmm. kind of. Uh, camp classic uh, weirdo musical that they put together the visitor which is a, a crazy italian sci-fi horror starring of all people john houston raging bull which uh has gone on to be held in some somewhat high regard uh although wasn't uh, wasn't a huge hit at the time uh, and heaven's gate which mm. uh again is one that kind of has its reputation has improved in recent years less deservedly than for raging bull i would say but yeah. it's it certainly a movie whose who, who's, uh, status has kind of improved over the years. Uh, and then uh, just a kind of a weirdo movie that was highlighted uh, in all of the articles I read about that month, a movie called The Isle Maker, which is a biopic of uh, Bob Marcucci, who was a uh, music manager in the early days of rock and roll, uh, who, and the movie was directed by Taylor Hackford and had early roles for Peter Gallagher and Joe Pantoliano. So it's like, and, it, and when I was looking it up, it seems like a movie that I may try endeavour to try and track down just because its IMDb rating is like in the high sixes. Right. And for me, that's kind of like the sweet spot. Any movie that gets over eight or nine, I tend to be like, uh, I guess a lot of people would kind of like this one. And I tend to be a little suspicious of. But anything that's kind of like six or seven is the one where I look at it and think, oh, like there's some disagreement, there's some frisson here. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one that I think I may actually try and track down because it's got an interesting array of talent behind it. Hmm. It's, it's interesting that um, Heaven's Gate. So I was I was born into the chaos of Heaven's Gate <laughs> and the the 
the the death of the Easy Riders Raging Bulls era. Yes. Um, which was nice in a way that um, I should grow go on to appreciate the um, the the cinematic movement that I apparently um, brought to a close by my birth, um, kind of ruining it all for everybody. Um, I <laughs> um, share a birthday with some really disappointing people. I found out, um, and this is no personal slight on them, but like um, like my brother shares a birthday with Kurt Russell. Um, mm. And that's great. I share a birthday with Joel McHale, um, otherwise known as Jeff Winger from Community. That's which not is too bad. All right, yes, yeah, okay. Uh, and then the next best person is Sean Young from Blade Runner. Uh, also, not not terrible. Yeah, I mean, I'd prefer Kurt Russell if I'm right. Honest. Sure. Um, but and also, uh, I found out the other day that Ryan Gosling is is like literally four days older than me, or something similar. Hmm. Which is it's kind of interesting, given how much we look alike. Yeah, um, yeah. I found out the other day that Army Hammer is like two weeks younger than me. Right. And uh, I have to say, I really feel as if I've, I really feel as if I've squandered that advantage. The uh, in the uh, Malcolm Gladwell kind of uh, theory that you know, if you're born earlier, then you have certain advantages in terms of development and stuff like that i really feel as if he has he has made good and, and overtaken me and i didn't really use those extra 13 days well mm. like well in in both we should probably keep a like a keen eye on army hammer and, and ryan gosling <laughs> and use them as like the control experiment of how successful our lives are um, because <laughs> they seem to be at the moment wasting uh, their lives um, and they should probably get real jobs other than uh, trying to chase down an artistic dream that will never never really come to fruition mm, yeah although I don't know this this call me by your name movie that seems to be turning things around for Army Hammer but Gosling what's he done yeah nothing um, <laughs> literally nothing he was in that notebook movie mm. um, and that's been it really so one for the teeny boppers um, but yeah, so yeah, disappointing array. I think I share a birthday with Bobby Kennedy as well, but his film career was not great. No, I mean mainly it's in documentaries. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, do you remember that? Much. Do you remember that uh, film that Emilio Estevez directed about Bobby Kennedy called Bobby? I do. I remember that it existed. I didn't actually watch it, but it oh. sounded interesting. It had an incredible cast, but the film was really bad. Yeah, that was yeah. that's a shame because I remember hearing about it and I thought, oh man, like a. A kaleidoscopic Altman-esque epic about like a wider range of characters built around the day that Kennedy, that Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. It's like, oh yeah, this sounds like it could be interesting, and then it landed with like a completely dull thud. Yeah, uh, and that's that's worse. Is that like when you get a movie that is not terrible, it's just like such a non-event. It's basically iceberg lettuce in film form. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. Yeah, you'd, no one ever wants to eat a whole iceberg lettuce. Well, maybe I could do that tomorrow. Get my birthday, start my birthday week off right. I mean, yes, it's something you wouldn't normally do. That is exactly true, Ed. <laughs> In that spirit, I shall do it. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about this week was was inspired by our uh, dirty dancing episode last week, where we talked about the 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 fact that there was. Um, the the kid who plays the waiter who 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 knocks up the the dancer whose name I forget what was it, Robbie. Robbie, that's right. Um, and I said he was like one of the all time great movie pricks. Mm. Um, so I put it to you, Ed. In like kind of uh, earlier this week, I'd like to pr- maybe have a rundown of who are the biggest pricks in cinema. Mm. And 
I'll start us off with 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 like probably the 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 gold standard of of movie like assholes, um, who is uh, Walter Peck from um, the Ghostbusters movies, played by William mm. Atherton, um, a, a, an antagonist um, who just literally just messes things up for the for the the uh, the protagonists, mm. um, but does so in in such a dicky way that like he is indelible, and when people think uh, of of like kind of bureaucratic douchebags. I'm pretty sure they're thinking of him, um, and he played pretty much the same role in Die Hard, um, mm. which is probably why he is the th- the first thing that pops up to my mind when 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 I think of dickheads and in cinema. Yeah, he was certainly one of the first ones that came to mind for me. Uh, and also, it's interesting you mentioned Die Hard because I basically said that every character in Die Hard <laughs> is kind of an arsehole, um, because in some respects that's kind of like what. Bruce Willis's persona for a while was he was just kind of like begrudgingly heroic. Mm-hmm. Like Bill Murray also kind of has this where the only reason why they're heroes is because the camera treats them as such. But if you had them in any of the context, you would just kind of think they were assholes who were just being uh, obstinate and troublemakers. Mm-hmm. And and in Die Hard, you know that's especially true of like the the two agents, the agents Johnson. Uh, who are both just kind of real dicks, but also most kind of the, the biggest one of the ones probably Ellis, yeah. who uh, co- massive cokehead as he is, decides that he's going to walk into a uh, negotiation with a man with a loaded gun and thinks that he has all of the leverage, uh, which he demonstrably does not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting you should mention um, the, the agents on the outside, but like any pretty much any character in film played by Paul Gleason. Um, is invariably a penis. Mm-hmm. So, like he, his uh, character from Die Hard, his character from The Breakfast Club, yeah. um, who just tortures kids in detention uh, in in such a kind of like horribly bullying way. I don't think I've ever seen him play um, a heroic or good character. Does he also play the guy who ends up getting raped by the gorilla at the end of Trading Places? <laughs> he does. Yeah, yes, he also. Does. Also, not an overly positive character, so yeah. to the extent that um, John Landis feels fairly confident that the audience will be like, "Hey, hilarious!" Yes, yeah, and he's right. I mean, the whole—I <laughs> mean, Trading Places is a great movie, but yeah. that whole last twenty minutes um, with like when Dan Aykroyd blacks up mm-hmm. and a man is raped by a gorilla, and um, we're on the gorilla's side—it's quite a quite a unfortunate last 20 minutes that or a bold series of choices <laughs> <laughs> yep the one that you probably couldn't get away with today i, w- I would say so although although i guess you maybe could in an arch tim and eric sort of way like if you said though if you said that there was a, a film or even a tv show in which one character blacked up and someone got raped by a gorilla you could think yeah i could see that happening in like a and a 10 minute adult swim comedy mm, yeah it's possible there is like kind of characters in films that are so obnoxious, and um, when you see these in your informative years, you are reminded of uh, perhaps older brothers in your life um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that that uh, act in this way. So, Kevin McAllister's older brother from um, Home Alone is his name Buzz. No, uh, yes, Buzz. Yeah, Buzz. Yeah, he is um, someone that certainly. Um, to my memory, I have a I have a wonderful relationship now with my older brother. But when I was a kid, <laughs> I felt like he embodied everything about my my older brother that I hated. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, I could definitely see that as a character who 
I mean, you kind of get the sense that he sort of likes Kevin under the surface, but also he enjoys the fact that he's the older brother, so he has a certain degree of power and can therefore just make Kevin's life miserable and suffer very few repercussions for it, mm-hmm. especially in a, in a house with, like, 87 other children or however many the McAllisters have running around the place, that uh, he's probably not going to be noticed that much if he's mean and constantly belittling his younger brother. Mm, yeah. In terms of, like, villains and stuff, like, mm. you're not really supposed to like them, but there are certain villains that, like, I want to suffer more than others. Um, mm-hmm. Jumping to mind people like Billy Zane's character in um, Titanic. Yeah. Who I think I think what I'm kind of hitting upon here is badly written characters. <laughs> so, like, a character that is literally so two-dimensional you can't help but hate them. There's yeah. nothing about them that is in any way compelling. You just... They're, they're literally just there to drive the plot and uh, um, kind of chase the antagonist around. And that's just bad writing, ultimately. Yeah, whenever I think of Billy Zane, I think of um, the comedian Jimmy Pardo. For, for a very long time, he used to do an impression of Billy Zane's character in... Uh, Titanic where he would just say round of drinks here my good man which is not a line that he says in the movie but is so indicative of the kind of character that he is that it seems like he should have said it um, that just kind of like supercilious and just arrogant dickish rich guy thing also in terms of hey, it's interesting you mentioned Titanic because I also had down here Burke in Aliens oh, uh, a, yeah. another James Cameron character a slightly better written one um has to be said, a, a more compellingly awful human being, but still definitely a a character who's you know pretty much from the beginning, even when he you you think, oh, he's sort of on their side, I guess, but because he represents the the corporation and because he's clearly there thinking about the bottom line, you don't really trust him. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul Reiser does such a great job of selling him as a credible human being who's just so kind of bone deep corrupt yeah. that he would happily sacrifice the lives of all these people just to get hold of a tiny sample of the the xenomorph mm. um and it's it's but, weird that like, i'm watching stranger things 2 at the minute and mm. obviously the the stranger things 2 i don't know if anyone's noticed but it leans quite heavily on uh, on nostalgia um mm. and as soon as i saw paul rise's character turn up i was like mm, no <laughs> i'm not <laughs> not trusting this guy yeah i think Maybe when he played the dad in Whiplash was the only time I've really trusted him. Mm, but yeah. he wasn't really in it that much. But any time he's the focal point. And I guess Mad About You, he wasn't that untrustworthy. But in movies, that definitely is a niche that he he found for himself and that it works really, really well as a kind of a someone who's who has that motor mouth uh, stand-up persona anyway. The, mm. the idea that you cast him as sort of a sleazy wheeler dealer you know it it fits so well and he adds so much kind of uh so much life to that movie Mm. uh, as as someone who you end up hating more than the giant aliens that are slaughtering everyone yeah and it's it's interesting that like the the two of us given our formative movie years we've picked a lot of 80s yuppie assholes Mm. um which another example i can think of is oh man the name escapes me the character but uh Miguel Ferreira's character in Robocop. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember his name either, but yeah, he's a great one. Yeah. Um, he, yeah, he's just like a, 
he's that ultimate uh, Gordon Gecko type, you know, mm. driven by greed for a major corporation um, that we just you just come to instantly distrust. And I don't know whether like the artists of the eighties knew this and just made them the villains or the uh, the people who failed spectacularly in every film. Uh, the, the the you know the the Burks, the the Robocop guy, and the Ellises from Die Hard who were you know bow out in fairly. Um, uh, ignominious fashion fairly early in the film um, because everyone hated yuppies. Mm. Yeah, I do wonder if it's it's to do with the fact that the people who are making movies in the 80s are people who probably would have been growing up in the maelstrom of the 60s mm-hmm. and half of them would have been growing up hearing like the hippie messages and thinking, yeah, you know, I want to be an artist, I want to go and you know change the world. And half of them were like, fuck that, I want to make money. Yeah. <laughs> and so just the the cultural fault lines between those two groups ended up playing out in the cinema of the era where, you know, half of them are making movies where like the EPA are the villains, like in uh, in Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. or in uh, or like everywhere else is like anyone who's had a slight bit of success is uh to be distrusted, and that's usually true. Um, you know, they are to be distrusted. I was trying to think of uh, other kind of uh, figures that uh, are, I, I think are, are particularly compelling in just how arsehole in their arseholery. And um, it's interesting you mentioned Miguel Ferrer and Robocop because I thought of uh, the character of Albert in Twin Peaks, also played by Miguel Ferrer, who is not a villain. He's actually ends up being one of the characters who is the most kind of like likable and charming but his whole thing is that he just has no time for the quaint and eccentricities of the people of Twin Peaks and there is something really weirdly endearing about seeing someone go through the movie who is go go through that series who just has no time for people being weirdos and who finds himself surrounded by a town of nothing but weirdos Mm, yeah interesting in that respect he's weirdly like Larry David I guess (laughs) where (laughs) Larry David is, by every met- uh, metric, not a good person, <laughs> not a kind of person that you're meant to like, but because uh, that he plays his uh, dislikability as kind of bold truth-telling or whatever, at least in his kind of hero's view of himself, uh, it ends up sort of working. Mm, yeah. Um, I've got a controversial... I think we'll probably kind of wrap this up in a minute, but I've got a controversial choice in what I kind of think is perhaps one of the biggest pricks in cinema um, mm-hmm. is James Bond. Oh, no, I can see that. Yeah, he's he's terrible to everyone he meets. Yeah, I mean, he has got... There's a litany of uh, offences against him from, you know, cultural insensitivities, uh, like when in Octopussy he gives a, an Indian waiter some money and says something along the lines of, that should keep you in curry for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, seem to remember that um, he is uh, a kind of a boorish misogynist, and uh, you know, even after the kind of the nineties rebirth with Pierce Brosnan and a female, is it sorry, who's the Judy Dench? Is it M or Q? I'm uh, M, yes. M with the, with the kind of rebirth, of the, kind of like in the uh, when she like literally calls him out for being a kind of uh, a misogynist dinosaur. Um, we still have things like in the in the Daniel Craig. Bond Sky is it Skyfall possibly where uh, one of the female characters tells him that she was a child prostitute and mm. then he bangs her in the shower. <laughs> yeah, that is in Skyfall and that is a one of many regrettable choices <laughs> in that movie. Yeah, it's like I mean I like Skyfall um, as you know I don't really enjoy Bond 
um, very much at all. I've not really seen a lot of them. But that one was like, I was actually on board for Skyfall um, mm. until that moment. And I was like, I mean, this is, yeah, this is just, like, she's just told you that, dude. Yeah, I mean, I had, I think I had the same response that I had to M. Night Shyamalan Split, which is actually not that, it's a pretty good thriller, and mm-hmm. it's a really kind of good, uh, trashy exploitation thriller, but there is, like, a subplot in it, which is about a character being a victim of sexual assault, mm-hmm. which is deployed in a way that is yeah absolutely deplorable and it just leaves like a foul taste in the mouth and that is it's exactly the same thing in skyfall where it's like oh i like this kind of nolan-esque attempt to to do a bond movie you know with the kind of the the scope and grandeur of, a, of these nolan batman movies and again like we've talked you know the idea of, of bond as a cultural barometer seeing like which way blockbusters are leaning and you know that stuff's all very interesting and then yeah, you just have a bit like that where you're just kind of like, this is this is really distasteful and really was as a choice that should have uh, should have not made it past the scripting stages. Mm. Yeah, and it's I think it's kind of crazy how so many people look up to him as an example of like a positive male role model, <laughs> um, mm. which is interesting. This is I'm going to take us on a diversion, Ed. That is in Ooh. no way pre-planned. Uh, it's actually the 19th um, of November today and the day before my birthday. But it's actually also International Men's Day. Which finally. Is, finally, right? We get, a, <laughs> we get a moment in the spotlight. When are us white men going to get a break? <laughs> um, but, like, a lot, it's very easy to mock uh, International Men's Day for that very yeah. reason. Um, and kind of rightly so. Um, but I kind of was thinking... There are so few positive male role models in mm. uh, cinema um, because uh, strength and uh, kind of what I'd seen as positive qualities all seem to be drawn from the idea of violence mm. <laughs> in one way or another. Discuss. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. Like, so much of it is uh, wrapped in machismo, and I think that... If you, if, I think the some of the best movies ever made are about interrogating ideas of what it is to be like ma- a man and what strength means and things like that. That's why I think uh, for his his many kind of problematic qualities, that's why someone like John Wayne remains a fascinating figure in in history because he's seen as embodying these these ideas of strength through often through violence most famously in something like The Quiet Man, where, like, 80% of that movie is him punching someone across Ireland. Mm. Um, But in stuff like The Searchers or Red River, you know, there's, like, a litany of his movies that are these... Or or The the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. There's there's so many of his movies that are about the the price of violence, the cost of it, you know, what it does to a man's soul and, and how it destroys them slowly and eats away at them. And... I think the 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 problem is that a lot of mainstream cinema oh, throughout the entire history of the medium uh, is not really interested in those sort of questions uh, and I think you can kind of see that in something like the Marvel movies which are you know are, are fun but you know someone like a Tony Stark just kind of deploys violence without really giving much thought to it and any time the Marvel movies kind of faint in that direction like when they hint at his alcoholism which is a big part of the comics which is never really manifested in the movies 
uh, it's more just kind of in the, the giving him the sense of depth as opposed to maybe suggesting that he's really having a a, a kind of a, a road to Damascus moment about the price of all of this violence. Mm. And it's I've I've just googled because this is how much I researched this before we started talking about <laughs> it. Like the greatest movie heroes, and pretty much everyone is a violent asshole. Mm. Um, I mean, we're really only getting to people like uh, Atticus Finch, who is, mm. you know, a, a man driven by, you know, decency, goodness, and, you know, the will to stand up for justice in the face of uh, widespread kind of racism. And, uh, yeah, but he's not really, he's a movie character because he was played by Gregory Peck, but, like, he's mm. specifically... Uh, you know, from literature, you know, he doesn't belong to the movie. Someone like Indiana Jones, even he is, you know, has his problems uh, in in kind of some of the ways he treats people. Um, And I'm just like, you know, is it just because, like, people who aren't hugely flawed aren't dramatically interesting? Uh, I guess, I mean, that's that's, that's possibly true, although I think that it is possible to make art that's just kind of nice and it can still be you know fulfilling like something like parks and rec uh that's just a show about nice people doing nice things which uh, you know has has some tension and and dramatic arts going on around it but it is mainly like just a show about people trying to do the right thing so Mm -hmm. i think it's possible to make art that's you know just about good thing good people trying to do the right thing and it's you know it doesn't need to be kind of tortured and violent i was just thinking trying to think of I couldn't think of, of specific characters necessarily, but like actors who maybe embody a different form of, of masculinity. And the, the one that came to mind was someone like Gene Kelly, mm. who is kind of in like he's he's always like the romantic lead in in like pretty much all the particularly the, the movies he made at the, kind of the height of his of his fame and his kind of physical prowess. But uh, he's not really someone who's given to to violence. Like he's very much because of the kind of movies he's in, because he was in like comedies and because he was in musicals. Like a lot of that is down to just the fact that he needs to be that they're, they're kind of light and there's so much grace to him. And I think that some of it is down to genre, but there is something about his persona and the work that he did over a long period of time that offers up a version of masculinity that is kind and you know treats people reasonably respectfully you know f- certainly for the time and that also you know goes through to his his politics by by most accounts he was like a fairly decent man you know in his private life as well mm. and we don't get that in movies as much as we do in music for example where um like in, in the last year we kind of lost three um kind of fairly big musical artists in the sense of uh, in in um, David Bowie, Prince, and George Michael, who, um, mm. as it was pointed out by many people, uh, represents uh, the idea that there is no one way to be a man or to be masculine. Um, yeah. We don't really see that in film as much um, in actors' personalities because obviously they play different characters. But yeah, I, I can't think of an awful lot of people who embodied those roles in in like the modern era, like people like you say. Um, like Gene Kelly, people like uh, Henry Fonda, uh, mm. I guess, uh, used to kind of embody decency and uh, a certain way about uh, his characters, um, and then which is why casting him in the role that he plays in Once Upon a Time in the West is kind of so amazing because you're kind of casting one of cinema's great 
kind of nice guys who will, um, as an genuinely awful killer of children, <laughs> um, is you know a bit of a masterstroke. Yeah, I was trying to think of someone. The, the the thing that came to my mind, and this is really based on just a handful of his movies, but I think Channing Tatum kind of has that. Of, mm-hmm. And one day, one if you're looking at the Magic Mike duology, um, he is like a, you know, he's just a guy who basically exists to give other people pleasure, and like he's got his, he has his own dreams, but he's not really an aggressive guy particularly in magic mike xxl which is just like a fun party movie <laughs> from across the board like i think that he may be someone who comes closest to that in those movies or, or even something like the like the two uh 21 jump street movies you know he's a fairly good-hearted just kind of like goofy guy who just wants to wants a friend <laughs> and to mm. solve crimes uh and he like is not really that aggressive or anything Hmm. Well, uh, what about someone like James Franco? Who oh, is oh, yeah. kind of like completely unafraid to to kind of play anything and and not have it buy into some kind of like macho bullshit image. Mm. And like and, and in, especially like in in comedy, which can be quite a toxic kind of uh, dude bro world. Yeah, he's certainly someone who's uh, fearless in pursuing pretty much anything that he wants to try, mm-hmm. which. Uh, it doesn't always work out artistically. <laughs> nope. Um, he, he's like he's directed like thirty movies, and I don't think anyone ever, before the disaster artist. I don't think anyone had anything nice to say about any of them. Mm. Um, although his, his Saturday Night Live doc was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think he's definitely someone who I think part of the reason why he is mocked by kind of swathes of of film culture, like the your dude bro film culture, is because he is someone who doesn't really adhere to traditional images of masculinity uh, and just pretty much tries anything regardless of whether it works out. Mm, yeah, yeah, often to his detriment, like you say. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that was just a, a thought that came from talking about James Bond and the fact that it is mm. International Men's Day. But, yeah, the, the last thing I wanted to talk about, Ed, which is something that I have planned for this week, is I am going to have a like a little mini film festival just for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am going to watch um, maybe some old favourites, probably Midnight Run. Um, and then I'm going to try and watch some new things that are kind of I've had in the queue for a while. Um, but I'd like you to programme a thread uh, of two films. You get to choose two films, um, okay. which you're going to make me watch, which you suspect I haven't seen that I would perhaps uh, be... Uh, uh, well, I would find a great benefit to my to my kind of film outlook. Okay, Sure. Uh, the first one is uh, something we were we were talking about before we started recording. Uh, I mentioned that I watched the an Agnes Varda documentary, The Beaches of Agnes, today, which uh, is very very good. And you said that you hadn't watched any of her movies, mm-hmm. so I'm going to recommend that you watch Cleo from Five to Seven, which is kind of her her kind of marquee movie. She's made lots of really great movies over the years, but that's that's the one that everyone usually cites as kind of her masterpiece you know it's a seminal work of the french new wave uh it's a really beautiful fun exciting vibrant movie um about two two hours in the life of a woman who uh is afraid that she has cancer and is kind of like going through her day with this hanging over her and what it shifts in her perspective about you know living in paris and and her career and everything like that uh and i think it's a it's a really 
vibrant and beautiful movie that I think everyone should see, uh, and I think uh, you would you would get a lot out of it. Mm, and it's definitely one if if you are trying to broaden the kind of the amount of cinematic voices you have in your head, I guess, and mm. your your kind of cultural space. And uh, I think there was a thing going around Twitter, wasn't there, like a couple of years ago, or and it's still going. Like people, there are fifty-two films by women. Yes, I did that uh, last year, and that was one of my one of the the films that I watched as a result of doing that. Of like going, okay, I'm going to purposefully seek out movies directed by women uh, and to try and expand my horizons. And that was, if it wasn't the best movie I watched last year as part of that strand, it's certainly one of the best. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a good thing to uh, to do. If you follow that hashtag, fifty two films by women, you'll see uh, a lot of people who are continuing past fifty two films mm. and finding there's just so much good work out there that you know often slips between the cracks. Um, so yeah, something to do to broaden your horizons. Um, what else have you got for me, Ed? Uh, I'm going to recommend a. Oh, I'm going to suggest. Uh, a animated movie by the director Satoshi Kon. Are you familiar with his work? No. Satoshi Kon was a filmmaker who directed, I think, four movies and one TV series before sadly uh, dying fairly young from cancer about seven or eight years ago. Um, he's directed a bunch of movies, pretty much all of which are now recognised as, as classics in the genre. Uh, but I'm going to recommend his last completed movie, which is called Paprika, which is a movie that has a certain cultural cachet now because it's it's often seen as as being very influential on uh, inception mm-hmm. which uh shares some themes it's about people kind of like traveling into dream spaces and a kind of a mystery built built around someone who's manipulating other people's dreams but it's just because it's an animated movie and you can just do so much more with animation than you can in live action uh it's one of the most visually dazzling movies i've seen in in a long time and uh, it's a kind of a even though it's his final movie it's a really good introduction to his work in terms of his the way in which he used editing to really experiment with the kinds of stories you can tell in in cinema mm, I'm um, Paprika is a film that I'm like totally aware of that I kind of saw floating around um, like a few years ago people talking about it but I never kind of connected it to anything other than a general sense that it was good um, mm. And I think it's on Amazon Prime, so I'll uh, I'll dig that out and give that a watch. I promise. Yay! Yay! So that's that's the thread, and I'll probably just balance this like film festival out with some dumb shit. that will be like <laughs> Agnes Varda like movies, and then you know I'll watch The Great Outdoors again or Uncle Buck because <laughs> why not? Yeah. Have you got any other ideas for what you you'll watch? I'm definitely going to watch Mudbound. Um, mm-hmm. which a lot of people are talking about. Um, I would like to perhaps try and keep catching up with the films from this year, most notably the new Spider-Man movie. But um, I'm actually going to, I think, watch Godfather 2, which is a, a film I've only ever seen once and never on anything other than VHS. Yeah, I've only, I think that may also be the case for me. I've definitely only seen it all the way through once, but it wasn't. It, maybe it wasn't VHS, it was probably just on Sky Movies or something. Mm. Because, or Sky One. For a while, the Sky used to do a thing where they would show series of movies like every Friday. It would be So that's how I saw all the Alien movies, as they showed all of them on consecutive Fridays. Mm. Uh, how I saw all the Godfather movies. And I think how I saw all of the Friday the 13th movies, uh, or at least a healthy chunk of them, was mm. that they got shown on Fridays. So uh, 
yeah, so I think that's that's true for me as well. I probably should rewatch them because I hear they're pretty good. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely only two of them as well. Um, yes. There's some, I heard a lot of people talking about a third one, but I think they're probably mistaken um, mm. because that would be really idiotic to return to a franchise like so long after with with without so many of the people that made the first two films good. Yes, because some of them may have decided not to, to return due to contractual obligations or had passed away, mm. you know. It, you know, it just seems, it would be wrong to yeah, do that. Yeah, it would be wrong. And and I think if you actually went through with it and made a, a film, a, a third instalment of that, you'd probably be hard-pressed to steer it away from kind of like cringeworthy melodrama um, mm. that has some of the uh, acting of a kind of like, you know, primary school Christmas play in it. Mm. Yeah. But I'm Although just glad it didn't happen. Yeah, and uh, I, I certainly wouldn't rip off the final shot of it for a short film I made as a student. <laughs> That's absolutely something that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad about that. Yeah, we're just glad that didn't happen. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, glad that they didn't do that. Glad that Francis Ford Coppola didn't adapt Dracula. You know, all these things that could have happened and been terrible, but thankfully didn't. Mm, I, I like the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. I like um, the first 20 minutes. Yeah. I like the prologue when it, it's super crazy yeah. and Gary Oldman is stabbing crosses with a sword. <laughs> um, and and it is, it's it's fascinating in terms of technique and trying to create a modern movie using essentially techniques from the early days of cinema. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of, there's lots of interesting things in it, but I, I, I just found it so kind of like stately to the point of just being so dull. Mm, I, um... Uh, like Keanu Reeves' accent um, in mm-hmm. it, and he he has a line. I can't remember the exact line, but it's something like he sees um, Gary Oldman in London, where he's kind of wearing the top hat and he's kind of got the kind of uh, steampunk goth thing looking, um, and he sees it is him. It is not <laughs> as if he has aged. <laughs> Just like fucking <laughs> hell. All right, so I haven't seen it in a long time, probably since the days of VHS. Um, mm. And I also remember watching it on a flight when I was about 11, uh, right. coming back from America and remembering the film being about 25 minutes long because they, they, they cut quite a lot out of that. Yeah, there's got to be... Yeah, there's there's a fair bit of violence in that movie. Not a huge... Not, like, massive amounts, but it's certainly gorier than you would expect from a movie that was kind of tilting at being a kind of a highbrow literary adaptation. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've talked me into liking it. No, um, maybe not liking it, but certainly I, I, I do think it's it's kind of too strange a movie to be dismissed. Yeah, similar similar to his later movie Twixt, which I don't like at all, but at least is a combination of very strange artistic choices. Yeah, yeah, which is always a good thing. Yeah, it's just a shame that he doesn't really make movies anymore. Yeah, no, like he got himself out of debt. But hasn't that For hasn't what? Uh, uh, from? Well, because he, uh, he no, lost, I mean, what, like, why did he get himself out of debt if he wasn't going to make movies? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. He, I mean, he makes some decent wine, but seriously, <laughs> come on. Yeah, maybe he's got one more in him. Hopefully, no. Hopefully, it will be that that it won't be that Megalopolis film that he was. He'd been wanting to make uh, he, the dreaded words. I'm just going to wait for the technology to catch up so I can realize mm. it. Which is yeah. it gives you the Phantom Menace is what happens there. <laughs> yeah. 
did you have any other kind of uh, topics you wanted to cover for, for your birthday episode before we get on to recommendations? No, I think that we're done. We're done. I okay. think we've covered uh, toxic masculinity in films, <laughs> uh, sexual assault, and Joel McHale. Um, yeah. Those last two weren't connected yet. No. <laughs> yeah, there was the, the holy trinity of shot reverse shot topics yeah. <laughs> pretty yeah. much considering the number of episodes we ended up doing about community it was definitely kind of a it was kind of a big part of the show for a while shit I, I feel like every few years we're probably just going to make an episode about community to just just check it's still dead mm. yeah that that movie doesn't look like it's uh, happening anytime soon yeah 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 now that now that Donald Glover is I mean obviously he wasn't part of the show towards the end but like if you were to do a movie you would try and get him back and I think he may be a little too successful for the yeah, show. Yeah, he's he's busy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we end this episode like we do every episode with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we liked and that uh, we think you, members of the audience, may like as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Uh, because it's my birthday, I'm going off piece with this one, um, but it is vaguely connected to films, um, I am going to uh, recommend a tabletop role-playing game called Fiasco, um, and when I say tabletop role-playing game, please don't run away. Um, <laughs> it's not uh, Dungeons & Dragons, although, you know, if you're into that, that's cool. It's uh, a game that doesn't involve a DM, so no one has to um, kind of know the rules. Um, and it is a very kind of fast improvisational game in which you essentially make your own Coen Brothers movie. Um, nice. Where you um, uh, pick a, a kind of a, a playset, it's called, which is a, a kind of a milieu that your adventure is going to be set in, and you go about kind of crafting relationships between people around the table, um, and you throw a few kind of plot elements in there. And the idea of the game is—it's not really a game because there's no actual winners or losers because everyone loses. Um, the idea of the game is to uh, spiral the plot out of control uh, in the funniest way possible. Um, mm. And yeah, you, it, it becomes a literal fiasco. Um, it kind of, it turns into kind of high farce, um, and it, it's a, like an improvisational game. So uh, mm. you basically play scenes with other people, and 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 you have uh, the other other uh, kind of players around the table will say, "Well, I want a scene between you two um, that is about this bit where your characters meet and you talk about the robbery you're going to uh, do and go." And you improvise it, and then at some point during the scene, the other players will choose whether the scene ends well for you or badly for you, and they will give you a dice, uh, a white one for bad, uh, good, and a black one for bad, and you have to seamlessly take the dice and improvise the end of the scene, either ending well or badly. Um, and um, it is a fucking brilliant game, uh, amazingly designed, um, by a guy called Jason Morningstar, who's a kind of an indie RPG designer. And um, we've had it for a long time in my board game group and have been kind of scared to play it because, you know, improvisational games um, kind of strike fear into the heart of people. Um, but we played it and we had like, uh, we picked um, a scenario where it was set in like a kind of a, a small Southern American town and it was just a very simple blackmail plot at the start. But then by the end, there was like uh, four of us had lost a leg. Uh, <laughs> one of us had been um, one of us had been uh, kidnapped by uh, a kind of like cannibal priest. Um, and the plot, the MacGuffin in the plot was a mannequin dressed in a Ku Klux Klan outfit full of heroin. Um, which this is all stemmed from the improvisations in the game and a very loose set of um, uh, kind of like 
pieces to build the story on. But it is, even if you're not into that kind of thing, it is a uh, truly exceptional experience that I would heartily recommend. Um, it kind of all, all like, like if you, th- you pitch it as like it's going to be an RPG in which it will end like an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> that sounds uh, that sounds fantastic. Uh, yeah, mm, yeah, it's uh, really really I, fun. I would definitely like to uh, try that out at some point in the future. As someone who doesn't play many role playing games but does enjoy uh, situations spiraling out of control comedically, uh, yeah, mm. <laughs> sounds right, my alley. Um, okay, I am going to recommend the movie Mudbound, which uh, debuted on Netflix on Friday and uh, has been one of the most buzzed around about movies of the year ever since it debuted back in, in January in Sundance, at Sundance. And uh, it's uh, the latest movie by Dee Reese, whose previous work included things like Bessie, the, the movie with uh, Queen Latifah, HBO, and Pariah, which uh, I've talked about on this show before. It was a really, really great uh, LGBTQA story. Um, Mudbound takes is kind of a an intimate epic, kind of in the Steinbeck uh a tradition about uh, two men returning to Mississippi after war, one played by Jason Mitchell, who people probably know best from playing Easy e in Straight Outta Compton, and the other played by Garrett Hedlund, who's one of those guys who's just in a bunch of movies, but you maybe don't know who he is. Like <laughs> He's kind of a... Not to, not to disparage him, but he's kind of like a fairly generic white guy. But he is... He's very, very good in this. Um, and essentially, it's about the tension that emerges because they return from fighting in world war ii and they develop a friendship because they've both seen combat they're both kind of dealing with the the problem of returning to normal life and they both experienced you know a different way of viewing the world as a result of it but their respective families are you know they're they're more entrenched in the older ways of viewing the world in terms of race relations in America just because the the structures of slavery and then uh, Reconstruction and Jim Crow are also so powerful and it's essentially about the gravitational pull of of, of racism and, and, and structural racism and what it effect ends up happening having on these two families over a long period of time. Uh, it's got a, a fantastic cast in addition to Hedlund and Mitchell. There's Jonathan Banks playing one of the worst characters you will ever see in a movie uh, in terms of just being truly terrible and awful human being. Uh, Jason Clark, Carrie Mulligan, uh, Mary J. Blige, who's, who's really great in it. And and it's, uh, it, like I say, it's, it's kind of a, an epic. It feels like a movie uh, that... You look know, the kind of movie that doesn't get made anymore. It's very, it's got kind of like great literary quality to it, particularly in the way it uses voiceover, where the voiceover will will kick in and it goes from character to character. And it's not really plot based. It's more just about creating a texture of what it is to be in these characters' skin at this particular point in American history. Uh, and uh, I think it's it's a, a difficult watch as as any good movie about race in America is. You know, there are there's there there are moments in it that are just just painful to watch but it's is also kind of lyrical and beautiful and uh is is just so so powerful uh you know like that kind of useless all-encompassing term for just a work of art that's really great but it is is one of the best movies that i've seen all year i'm as ever with the netflix release i am mixed on just the fact that you know it's a movie that's getting a token theatrical run so not as many people are going to get to see it in a, on a big screen where you know it's clearly designed to be seen on the biggest screen possible it's beautifully composed but at the same time i'm really happy that millions of people have access to it instantly um mm-hmm. 
so like so uh, uh, but, uh, and also uh, I don't like the fact that the uh, the during the end credits it auto plays the trailer for the Punisher, <laughs> which is not conducive to the more the the kind of the period of reflection and contemplation that should be engendered by the end of the movie to have mm-hmm. uh, John Bernthal show up owning motherfuckers uh <laughs> it's really is really not quite fitting um but uh, that's that's a kind of a broader problem with Netflix it's nothing to do with Mudbound but Mudbound is is great and i think that everyone should see it if anything it's uh it could stand to be longer which uh, is not something i often say about movies that are like two hours and 15 minutes long uh but it is it is a really really fantastic work of art uh, and i am really glad that uh, as people how can see it instantly anywhere in the world mm, yeah that is the one good thing about you know, not being able to well like being unlikely to see it at the cinema mm. um that you know you will be able to just see it and it's if you've got a decent setup at home then it's going to be good but not quite as good but it's probably going to reach a way wider audience than it ever would um given uh given how much it costs to release a film in cinemas yeah and and hopefully the academy won't let their their Mm. anti-streaming service bias kind of prevent it from getting attention during the award season because it is it is a really really great movie and i think it would be a shame if the mode of distribution for it ended up being what uh, kind of prevented it from being recognised more broadly as an absolute kind of like great work of art. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so thank you everyone for listening this week. If you've enjoyed the show, then please review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, subscribe to us, like us, uh, you know, tell your friends about about the show. It help us, helps us grow the audience. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. 